This message was presented at the GYC to the End in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our ongoing seminar, Every Wind of Doctrine. And in some respects, we have the book that we're going to talk about for the next few minutes, Questions on Doctrine, to thank for doing this seminar today, Every Wind of Doctrine. So before we get into our presentation for this afternoon, I'm going to offer a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here again to this afternoon's seminar. Father, as we get into this next section, I pray that we would again have clarity and understanding of the issues that are being discussed. And I pray that we would learn from the mistakes of the past and not repeat them, and that we would have clarity of understanding about the gospel and the sanctuary and of all these important issues. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the title for this afternoon's seminar is From Questions on Doctrine to Desmond Ford. On this slide, you see a picture of this book, Questions on Doctrine, published in 1957, as well as the annotated edition that was republished in 2003. And then to the bottom right-hand corner is a picture of Dr. Desmond Ford. So you're going to see, as we go through the presentation today, of, of the connection and of the foundation that was laid by the theology of the book and questions on doctrine that eventually paved the way for Desmond Ford to come along and question the investigative judgment, the validity of what happened in 1844, and all of those things. Now, we're going to talk about the history of questions on doctrine first, commonly referred to as QOD. Um, It was published in 1957 by, quote-unquote, Representative Seventh-day Adventist. This representative group was about four or five people that had a certain perspective that didn't necessarily fit with what many other Seventh-day Adventists believed. This was republished in 2003 by Andrews University Press as an annotated edition. Now, in the annotated edition in Roman numeral page 13, The author says, Questions on Doctrine easily qualifies as the most divisive book in Seventh-day Adventist history, a book published to help bring peace between Adventism and conservative Protestantism. Its release brought prolonged alienation and separation to the Adventist factions that grew up around it. And whatever side of the spectrum you may land, I think there is pretty general agreement about that statement, that it did bring division, alienation, separation among various Adventist factions. So the question is, how did this whole thing get started? Why was the book published in the first place? What was its purpose? Well, in the 1950s, um, a gentleman by the name of T.E. Unruh was president of the East Pennsylvania Conference and he was listening on the radio to a series of presentations on righteousness by faith by Dr. Donald Barnhouse, who was editor of Eternal Magazine and a leading voice of American, conservative, American Protestantism's conservative wing. So here you have a Seventh-day Adventist conference president listening to an evangelical minister on the topic of righteousness by faith. Now, in this day and age, some of you may not 
find that to be something unusual, but back then that was a bit more of an unusual thing to go listen to an evangelical to define the gospel. So interestingly, Unruh, the president of East Pennsylvania Conference, reaches out to Barnhouse. He writes him a letter and commends him for his sermons on righteousness by faith. Well, this caused Barnhouse to be astonished, to be commended, because um, he thought Adonis believed in righteousness by works, and here you have a conference president in the Seventh-day Adventist denomination commending him for his teaching on righteousness by faith. So Unruh invited him to have lunch and also sent him a copy of Steps to Christ as a launching point for discussion. Well, the lunch never happened, but they did correspond by letter. So this correspondence continued um, for a period of time until Donald Barnhouse finished reading the book Steps to Christ, and he wrote a scathing review of the book Steps to Christ in his Eternity magazine, calling the book false in all its parts. So Steps to Christ, that's like, that's one of our standard go-to witnessing books that we share with our non-Adventist friends, Steps to Christ, Donald Barnhouse, a leading evangelical, says that the book Steps to Christ is false in all its parts. Um, He also called Ellen White the founder of a cult. And so at this point, Unruh discontinued the correspondence. He's like, oh, wow, I guess I stepped into a hornet's nest here. And by sharing the book Steps to Christ now with Barnhouse, now Barnhouse is attacking Adventism, saying that Ellen White's the founder of a cult. The book Steps to Christ itself is false in all its parts. And for those of you who have read Steps to Christ, and I hope all of you have, That book is the most powerful, simple explanation on righteousness by faith. Steps to Christ is a very clear explanation of righteousness by faith. So it seemed like things had died down, but then in 1954, Donald Barnhouse appointed a young evangelical scholar named Walter Martin to write a book on Seventh-day Adventists. And the book would be entitled The Rise of the Cults. Well, that's not terribly encouraging if you're a Seventh-day Adventist. Nobody likes to be labeled as a cult. And so Walter Martin reached out to T.E. Unruh. He knew his contact information from Barnhouse, and he reached out to Unruh asking to speak with authoritative Adventists in Adventist literature, and he wanted to read Adventist literature so that he could treat Adventists fairly. He didn't want to create a straw man. He wanted to know for sure from the horse's mouth what they actually believed. And by the way, that's good advice in general. Sometimes I see these debates on Facebook where people build up a straw man and tear it down and say, so-and-so believes this, but it's not really what they believe. Make sure that you're accurately, accurately representing what the person teaches and believes. So Martin, to his credit, wanted to know, what do Adventists really believe? I don't want to just launch out and say, oh yeah, they believe in righteousness by works and this, that, and the other thing. I want to read their books and I want to talk to them and find out what do Seventh-day Adventists believe. So this led to a series of discussions in 1955 and 1956. Donald Barnhouse and Walter Martin represented the Protestant conservative evangelicals. Um, and then um, for the Seventh-day Adventists, you have Leroy Froome, who was the leader of the General Conference Ministerial Association. 
um, from 1941 to 1950, and he still had a significant voice in the church. You had W.E. Reed, who was field secretary of the General Conference, George Cannon, a teacher of theology at Nyack Missionary College in New York, Roy Allen Anderson, direct, director of the G.C. Ministerial, and they represented the Seventh-day Adventists. Now, of note, especially based on the questions that were being asked, with respect to the nature of the atonement and the sanctuary and things of that nature, someone who was missing from this group was M.L. Andreasen. He was the foremost scholar on the atonement in the church, and he has been unfairly vilified by many who have accepted QOD theology in the years that have followed. But M.L. Andreasen is the one who wrote the commentary section on the book of Hebrews. And so he wasn't some nobody Joe Schmo in the church. He was actually a prominent scholar. He had been president of Union College. He was president of a local conference, I believe, in New York. And so he was um, Greater New York Conference. He was a prominent person that wasn't just some troublemaker. He actually had influence and years of experience in the church. We actually talked about him yesterday with his conversion from semi-Arianism to a, a true understanding of the Godhead after visiting Ellen White. So he was someone that was a good student. He wasn't part of the group. Well, going on to the discussion that did take place among the Adventists who were present with Barnhouse and Martin, who were the evangelical Protestants, Barnhouse and Martin had 48 questions on doctrine for the Seventh-day Adventists. Now, here's what is often missed sight of, and this is something that definitely needs to be mentioned. Most of the book and its responses to these questions are standard Adventist theology that's good material. So it's not like 99% of the book is laced with error. Much of it's actually pretty good. So just keep that in mind that you have to be honest and fair in your response. If you read many of the sections in the book, it's standard Adventist theology, which, on the other hand, then allowed people who were reading the book to kind of lower their guard into thinking that it was an acceptable book. However, excuse me, however, there were some hot spots that have not been resolved since that time. So there were six main areas of potential trouble. So here were the six questions that were going to lead to some problems for those answering the questions, the Adventists who would answer the questions. Number one, what constitutes the remnant church? What constitutes Babylon? And then a concern from Barnhouse and Martin that Seventh-day Adventists teach that the atonement was not completed at the cross. So Barnhouse and Martin had a big problem with that. And then they had a concern that Seventh-day Adventists teach that salvation is received by grace plus the works of the law. They also had a concern that the Lord Jesus Christ, that Adventists believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is a created being not from all eternity, and we've already dealt with that in our very first seminar presentation, showing that Adventists clearly believe that he is from all eternity. And then they also had a concern that Jesus partook of man's fallen sinful nature at the Incarnation. So these are the six areas that Martin and Barnhouse had concern with especially. Now, the other 42 questions, they they wanted to know specifically what Adamus believed, but there wasn't going to be a major problem. But these are the six questions 
depending on how they were answered, Barnhouse and Martin would determine whether or not they would label Seventh-day Adventist as a cult. So that's already the, setting the interesting stage for a meeting where it's like, you better answer these questions correctly or we're going to call you a cult. So that's interesting. Now, there was no difficulty in showing that Adventists believe from Scripture that Jesus is from all eternity, and they have the statement from Ellen White, in Christ is life, original, unborrowed, underived from desire of ages. And, and there were other Bible verses and statements that they showed. Look, we're, no problem there. Also, there was no trouble in showing that Adventists do not believe that we are saved by works. It's not an issue, and even the book Steps to Christ is clear on that. So Barnhouse said it was false in all its parts, but obviously Adventists don't believe that we're saved by works. That was the accusation, but it's not true. Um, the trouble points especially centered on what constitutes the remnant church in, and Babylon, and the trouble also resolved around the theology of the atonement and on the human nature of Christ. So... For starters, how these questions were answered determined whether or not Barnhouse and Martin would include the Seventh-day Adventist Church as a cult in its book. But here's the other thing. Based on the Bible, Barnhouse and Martin were actually representing the fallen daughter churches of Babylon. Right? So Herbert Douglas mentions this in his book, um, or actually Fork in the Road, he also wrote a book, The Opportunity of the Century, where Hezekiah had visitors from Babylon, and rather than showing them the truth of how God has a special people on the earth and all of these things, what Hezekiah showed was the, the gold and the money and the, the worldly splendor of the kingdom of Israel, and he missed his opportunity. And when Babylon came calling to God's people again in the 1950s, rather than giving a Christ-like spirited defense of the truths of Adventism for, God, for the world at the end of the world, they tried to make Adventism fit in to Babylon. That's the reality. Because Barnhouse and Martin were actually representing the fallen daughter churches of Babylon. So here's the difficulty of reconciling this meeting. You have Barnhouse and Martin saying, we're going to label you as a cult if you don't agree with how we want you to answer these questions. And Seventh-day Adventists rightfully would, would recognize the viewpoint that was being promoted by Barnhouse and Martin as Babylonian theology. That's the reality. And somehow Froom and Company um, didn't see through that. So Froom and Company, the others that were part of the debate, were determined to be accepted by the Protestant evangelicals. They wanted acceptance and they were that which opened them up then to compromise so that they could have acceptance. That's just human nature. Compromise for acceptance. Another key impasse not really understood at the time is that Barnhouse and Martin were coming from a Calvinist perspective of predestination, where Adventists were coming from an Arminian perspective of free will, which the Methodist Church came out of. So Calvinism teaches that we are predestined to be saved or lost, and by virtue of that, we are sinners by nature that will sin till Jesus come, and we can only be saved by a legal and 
imputed righteousness. Therefore, Jesus can't be like us because he's not a sinner by nature. Whereas Arminians taught free will. So from a Calvinist perspective, original sin, Christ having an unfallen nature and a completed atonement on the cross are a given. From a free will perspective, sin is a choice. Christ can have a fallen nature because he made a choice of how to live. And the atonement is completed at the end of the investigative judgment when all have made their decision as to whom they will serve. And that was really kind of the debate that the underlying issue to the debate that led to compromise. Now, let's go to the issue of the remnant. So this was the question that Barnhouse and Martin had for the Adonis, and this is question number 20 out of 48. It is alleged that Seventh-day Adonists teach that they alone constitute the finally completed remnant church mentioned in the book of Revelation. Is this true, or do Seventh-day Adventists recognize by the remnant those in every denomination who remain faithful to the Scriptures and the faith once delivered to the saints? And then they go on to ask, do Adventists maintain that they alone are the only true witnesses of the living God in our age and that their observance of the Seventh-day Sabbath is one of the major marks that identify them as God's remnant church? So obviously, Barnhouse and Martin say, how dare you say that you're the remnant? Now, again, Revelation twelve seventeen says um, the dragon was wroth with a woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the Sabbath is at the heart of the Ten Commandments. It's one of the ten. And if you include the Sabbath along with the testimony of Jesus' spirit of prophecy, we're the only church in all of the world that has those two identifying marks. That's the bottom line. So now we're going to look at the answer. So if Froom and company were to give a clear biblical answer, they would say, we believe that the prophecy of Revelation twelve seventeen identifies us because of the fourth commandment and the testimony of Jesus. And let's see how they answer the question. This is page 187 of Questions on Doctrine. We believe that the prophecy of Revelation 12, 17 points to the experience and work of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but we do not believe that we alone constitute the true children of God. Well, they're kind of dancing around the question that we are the only true Christians on earth today, but they're going to get to the answer. You're going to see it on the next page. We believe that God has a multitude of earnest, faithful, sincere followers in all Christian communions who are, in the words of the question, true witnesses of the living God. Now, obviously, we believe that God has true witnesses of the living God in all the churches, certainly. But notice how they then finish off five pages later. Seventh-day Adventists firmly believe that God has a precious remnant, a multitude of earnest sincere believers in every church, not accepting, or in other words, including the Roman Catholic communion who are living up to all the light God has given them. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it fair to say that faithful people in the Roman Catholic church and all the fallen Protestant churches of Babylon constitute the remnant? No. Because they are not keeping the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ to its fullness the way the Seventh-day Adventist church does. Now, there are some Seventh-day Adventists now who are embarrassed by the idea of remnant theology, but the reality is is that we are the remnant church of Bible prophecy. So the answer that they gave was a compromise answer 
by saying that God has a precious remnant in every single church. Then the question on Babylon, question number 21, do Seventh-day Adventists teach that the members of the various Protestant denominations, this is on page 197 of Questions on Doctrine, that the members of the various Protestant denominations as well as the Catholic, Greek, and Russian Orthodox churches are to be identified with Babylon, the symbol of apostasy. Now, what's the answer? Yes. That's the answer to the question. They are part of Babylon. They're identified with Babylon. You have the mother church, the Roman Catholic church, and her daughters. So the answer to that question is yes. Notice how they answer. We fully recognize, and this is page 197, we fully recognize the heartening fact that a host of true followers of Christ are scattered all through the various churches of Christendom, including the Roman Catholic communion. These God clearly recognizes as his own. Such do not form a part of the Babylon portrayed in the apocalypse. What is denominated Babylon in Scripture obviously embraces those who have broken with the spirit and essence of true Christianity and have followed the way of apostasy, such are under the censure of heaven. Was that a correct answer? No. So if, if God's true followers in the other churches are not part of Babylon, then why does Revelation 18.4 say, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. If they're not part of Babylon, why come out? So it was a compromise answer that was not truthful. Why would we call them out if they are already part of the remnant and not part of Babylon? So we already see with respect to the issue of how the authors of Questions on Doctrine answered the question of the remnant and how they answered the question of Babylon that this was a change from what Adventists believed, and it's not true. And Seventh-day Adventists generally today, faithful Seventh-day Adventists, do not believe the answers the way those answers were written out. That's not what we believe. We believe we are the remnant church, and we believe that we are to call people out of Babylon. So, well, obviously, we believe that God has some... So, because the problem with the last statement, and, and generally if you have a question, talk to me afterwards, but the problem with the last statement is that they said that People in the other churches do not form a part of Babylon. And yet God says, if you're in Babylon, come out of her. So they're saying, oh, if you're in those churches, if you're faithful, you're not part of Babylon. And yet God does have his people in those churches, but he says, come out of her. That's the issue. And so we are to call people out of Babylon. So then they had a question on the atonement. And their um, question, this is question number 29. This is page 341 of Questions on Doctrine. Seventh-day Adventists have frequently been charged with teaching that the atonement was not completed on the cross. Is this true? Well, there was a lengthy discussion on the atonement from pages 341 to 445, but to summarize what Froome and company wrote out, they had some difficulty on this, but they answered that the atonement was accomplished on the cross and that the benefits are currently being applied. Now, the problem with this answer is that it's wrong. And here is why. The 2300-day prophecy points us to what day? The antitypical day of atonement. And it is only, the atonement is only finished when the sins of God's people are blotted out at the end of the day of atonement. So the sacrifice 
with the shedding of the blood at the altar is the beginning of the process of the atonement. Now the sacrifice has been made, but then the blood is brought into the sanctuary, and then ultimately the blood of Christ is used to blot out the sins of God's people. So he made the provision for the sacrifice on the cross in 31 AD, but the atonement is not finished until Michael stands up, that's Christ standing up, and probation closes. So that created some further confusion about the nature of the atonement. So then we move on now to um, the humanity of Christ. Question number six, this is page 50 of Questions on Doctrine. What do you Adventists understand by Christ's use of the title Son of Man, and what do you consider to have been the basic purpose of the Incarnation? Well, Fruman Company had a problem here because um, Barnhouse and Martin were adamant that Christ had to have a sinless nature, and Froome had taken a poll of several Adventist leaders, and nearly all of them believed that Christ had a fallen sinful nature. So this put Froome in a bind because to affirm this belief would increase the risk of being labeled as a cult. So Froome and company advocated that Jesus took an unfallen, sinless nature. They taught that he took human nature vicariously as he took our sins vicariously. Well, he actually became a human being. I mean, Scripture makes it clear that he came in the flesh. And Scripture also says um, in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he really did take on our sins. It says he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That's why he died. He didn't bear our sins vicariously. He actually really did bear our sins. He took the penalty for them. So in their answer on the nature of Christ, they placed an emphasis on Ellen White's statements that suggest that Christ took a sinless nature. Um, And in page 59 of Questions on Doctrine, um, they quote Testimonies, Volume 2, page 201, which says, he is our example in all things. He is a brother in our infirmities, but not in possessing like passions. As the sinless one, his nature recoiled from evil. And I've, I've had a brother in the faith ask me at one point, um, well, Jesus' nature recoiled from evil. Does your nature recoil um, from evil? But that's the wrong question to ask. The question shouldn't be asked, does your nature recoil from evil? The question really should be, can your nature recoil from evil. And the reality is is that when we are made new creatures in Christ, things that we once loved we now hate and things that we once hate hated we now love. So to say to say does your nature recoil in horror from evil? Well, if it doesn't, Jesus who is our example can give us that victory, but to, so anyway, that was one of their statements. They also pla- placed an emphasis um, that suggests that Christ took a sinless nature. Here's another statement, page 59 of QOD, um, which says, we should have no misgivings. This is Signs of the Times, June 9, 1898. We should have no misgivings in regard to the perfect sinlessness of the human nature of Christ. Well, that's easy to explain when you understand that Christ never sinned. Um, now, in Appendix B of, of the book, page 650, there's a heading to a number of other statements that they add about the humanity of Christ where it says, took sinless human nature, which, again, this is changing where Adventists are coming from. Up until that point, the majority view was that he took a sinful human nature. So notice what um, Froome does here in pages 59 and 60 of QOD. Again, we remark, 
Christ bore all this human nature vicariously, just as vicariously he bore the iniquities of us all. And then the next paragraph, it is in this sense that we, or that all should understand the writings of Ellen G. White when she refers occasionally to sinful, fallen, and deteriorated human nature. We read that Jesus took our nature. He took upon himself human nature. He took the nature of man. He took our sinful nature. He took our fallen nature. He took man's nature in its fallen condition. So they acknowledge those statements, but they're saying it's in this sense. And then notice what Froome says here on page 60. 60, All these are forceful, cogent statements, but surely no one would designedly attach a meaning to them, which runs counter to what the same writer has given in other places in her work. And I would say, oh, the irony of that statement. This is exactly what Freeman Company did. They designedly attached a meaning to selected statements that fit the narrative they were pushing. So he's saying, don't put a narrative on her statements different than what I'm saying. Let's look at a more complete picture of the humanity of Christ. Desire of Ages 48 and 49. It would have been an almost infinite humiliation for the Son of God to take man's nature, even when Adam stood in his innocence in Eden. But Jesus accepted humanity when the race had been weakened by 4,000 years of sin. Like every child of Adam, he accepted the results of the working of the great law of heredity. Now, we could just stop right there, and that settles the issue. He accepted the great, the working of the great law of heredity. When heredity kicks in, you don't get to pick which genes you inherit. What these results were is shown in the history of his earthly ancestors. He came with such a heredity to share our sorrows and temptations and to give us the example of a sinless life. In other words, you can have fallen human nature and still live apart from sin, which is something that Barnhouse and Martin didn't understand. And that's the difference between predestination and free will. Desire of Ages 117, for 4,000 years the race had been decreasing in physical strength, in mental power, and in moral worth, and Christ took upon him the infirmities of degenerate humanity. Only thus could he rescue man from the lowest depths of his degradation. Many claimed that it was impossible for Christ to be overcome by temptation. Then he could not have been placed in Adam's position. He could not have gained the victory that Adam failed to gain. If we have in any sense a more trying conflict than had Christ, then he, then he would not be able to succor or help us. But our Savior took humanity with all its liabilities. He took the nature of man with the possibility of yielding to temptation. We have nothing to bear which he has not endured. That's pretty clear to me. And then Desire of Ages 122, 123. In our own strength, it is impossible for us to deny the clamors of our fallen nature. Through this channel, Satan will bring temptation upon us. Christ knew that the enemy would come to every human being to take advantage of hereditary weakness and by his false insinuations to ensnare all whose trust is not in God. So here's what we're looking at. A fallen nature that have clamors that we cannot deny in our own strength and we have hereditary weakness. Now notice the next sentence that Ellen White makes. And by passing over the ground which man must travel, our Lord has prepared the way for us to overcome. 
I say amen to that. So I have a fallen nature that has clamorings that I cannot deny of myself, but Christ passed over that ground by having the same nature, and he has prepared the way for you and for me to overcome. It is not his will that we should be placed at a disadvantage in the conflict with Satan. He would not have us intimidated and discouraged by the assaults of the servant. Be of good cheer, he says, I have overcome the world. So Froome and company were less than transparent in their attempt to answer these questions. And then Froome went on to label Seventh-day Adventists who disagreed with these answers as the lunatic fringe of Adventism. Wow, that's so generous. You change the perspective of what Adventists had historically believed, and then you say, if you still believe that way, you now constitute the lunatic fringe of Adventism. So there was some fallout. M.L. Andreessen wrote a response in letters to the churches, um, and some didn't appreciate the approach that he took. He lost his credentials as a result. He um, ultimately developed an ulcer, and he died from an ulcer, but his um, credentials were restored to his family after he died. Um, Freeman Company had perhaps unwittingly attempted to meld two incompatible theological tectonic plates, and that is predestination and free will. Um, a new evangelical gospel theology emerged in Adventism, championed by Edward Hepenstall and others. The new evangelical gospel theology promoted original sin and an emphasis on forensic legal justification to cover the sin of our nature. This led to acceptance by many that we will be sinners by nature until Jesus comes. And I see your hand, but I'm going to get to questions after the session. This led to questions on the logic of an investigative judgment that closes before the second coming. This then led Desmond Ford to take the next step in the progression of heresy, if you will. Desmond Ford accepted the gospel as portrayed in Questions on Doctrine, and his view of the gospel led him to question the investigative judgment in his own words. Now, I'm going to share with you now the testimony of my good friend here, Kevin Paulson. He's, he's here with us today. He was a student at Pacific Union College at the time, and we're going to, this is from his article, 1844, Embattled Yet Enduring. On the fall quarter events calendar, we soon noticed a scheduled meeting of the Association of Adventist Forms with Desmond Ford as the featured speaker. His title, The Investigative Judgment, Theological Milestone or Historical Necessity. The very words rang on easy bells in the minds of the faithful. The meeting was scheduled for October 27, 1979. I remember it well. It was a lovely autumn Sabbath. Words seemed to have gotten around that Ford was about to make a major statement. Devotees of his theology gathered to the PUC campus from far and near. Now, something that I should probably add to this is that Desmond Ford had been moved from Avondale College to PUC. He was already creating a stir in Australia, and the idea was is he's kind of a big fish in a little pond. Maybe if we move him to North America, he won't cause so much trouble. Well, by moving him from Australia to North America, his influence um, expanded significantly. So now there's this major meeting that's taking place, October 27, 1979. One reported to me much later that the evening before, Ford had stated to her, what I say tomorrow will be heard around the world. 
More than a few seem to know this. The same That same evening, I spoke on the telephone with Dr. Herbert Douglas, then serving as senior book editor at the Pacific Press. He was certain Ford would be extremely subtle in his assertions and would need, in Douglas's words, to be smoked out of his lair. He believed it utterly out of the question that Ford would join Robert Brinsmead in directly attacking the historic SDA sanctuary doctrine. I then told Douglas I would call him the following evening after Ford's presentation, but only if something dramatic occurred. He seemed quite sure I would not be calling him. He was in for a surprise. At 3.30 the following afternoon, two friends and I knelt for prayer in my dormitory room prior to leaving for the meeting site. Somehow we too sensed something serious was about to happen. As we approached Paul and Hall where the meeting was to occur, we saw the doors open and a crowd start pouring out. Running ahead, I learned that due to overflow numbers, the meeting was being relocated to Irwin Hall, PUC's historic building, which then overlooked the lower expanse of classrooms, walkways, and the college church complex. My friends and I turned around and hurried up the long stone staircase, anxious to find good seats. At one point, I asked with a hint of sarcasm, what are we running for, so we can hear the investigative judgment thrown away? My negative premonitions were growing stronger. Ford began his discourse with his own testimony, describing doubts he had held for decades about the harmony of the Adventist Sanctuary Doctrine with the book of Hebrews. He denied any linguistic connection between Daniel 8.14 and the depiction in Leviticus 16 of the ancient cleansing of the sanctuary and declared that the book of Hebrews places Christ in the most holy place, not in 1844, but immediately at his ascension. The crowd loved every word. That's what still annoys me when I read this story. Greeting Ford's message with enthusiastic applause. We should know better than that. At least one retired North American division president was there rising to his feet during the question period with a choked voice and a breaking heart. A group of us gathered in the back after the meeting, hardly believing what we had just heard. Upon returning to my dorm room, I called Herbert Douglas again, as I had promised to do, and the event Ford's message was newsworthy. I read him my notes over the telephone. By the time I finished, his sorrow was palpable. Tapes of the meeting belted the world in days. Soon the General Conference intervened, arranging with Pacific Union College that Ford be given a six-month leave of absence, during which time he would prepare a defense of his views, which would then be examined by a committee of persons from varied backgrounds. Ford's manuscript titled Daniel 8.14, The Day of Atonement, and the Investigative Judgment totaled 991 pages and was eventually published in book form. An abbreviated version of the manuscript was also published in Spectrum magazine. A group of 114 scholars, pastors, and church administrators, soon to be called the Sanctuary Review Committee, met to consider Ford's case at the Glacier View Ranch near Ward, Colorado, the week of August 10 to 15, 1980. Less than a month later, following unsuccessful efforts by church leaders to urge Ford's reconsideration of his stand, the General Conference recommended to the Australasian Division, which is now South Pacific, that Ford's ministerial credentials be removed. This was done. The years that followed would see scores of pastors and a number of congregations exit the ministry as well as the denomination, and the controversy thus ignited continues to this day. It is an epoch the church dare not forget and one whose unfinished business remains essential to the task of contemporary Adventism. I'm sure if you'd like, you can speak with with Kevin after the meeting and he'll give you more insight into what it was like to be there that day and how it's affected the church since then. There were key questions raised by Desmond Ford. Number one, the focus of the judgment and sanctuary cleansing in Daniel 7 and 8 is not the people of God, but their enemies. But if you look at what the Bible says in Daniel 7, 26 and 27, it says the people of the saints of the Most High shall possess the kingdom. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 says that when Michael stands up and probation closes, God's people will be delivered, everyone whose name is found 
found written in the book. If their name is found written in the book, that means that there was a process of investigation to make sure that their name would be found there. And in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, it says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So your name can either remain or be blotted out of the book of life. And so clearly the whole book of Daniel is a book about judgment. We talked about that in one of our earlier presentations. And, you know, I talked to my friend Lewis Walton, and I I have to agree with what he said. You know, Desmond Ford seemed to come with earth-shaking arguments that shook up Adventism at the time. But if you really look at them, there's not a lot to it. Um, His arguments aren't as scary as they seem to possibly be. In his point number two, he says the year-day principle lacks clear biblical support. He says Leviticus 4, 6, and Numbers 14, 34 don't really prove anything. But clearly they are, are helpful in our understanding of the year-day principle. But then, um, yeah, excuse me, that's Ezekiel 4, 6, not Leviticus 4, 6. Ezekiel 4, 6, and Numbers 14, 34. But if you look at the year-day principle just in the book of Daniel, specifically the 2300 days, which Desmond Ford attacked, the question is asked by the two heavenly beings, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? That's verse 13. And the answer in verse 14 says, he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Well, the word for vision in Daniel 8.13 is hazon, and that word refers to what you have seen. Well, what's been seen in the vision is verses 3 through 12, where you have a ram, a he-goat, and a little horn. So how long is is it going to be where we go through the ram, the he-goat, and the little horn? Well, Daniel 8 identifies the ram as Medo-Persia and the he-goat as Greece. So the question is, how long are we going to go through Medo-Persia, Greece, and the little horn of Rome, which is pagan and papal Rome? Well, obviously, that can't be literal time of 2,300 days. So the year-day principle is inherent within um, Daniel chapter 8 with the 2300-day prophecy. It also explains why Medo-Persia is the first kingdom in Daniel chapter 8 because the 2300-day prophecy begins during the time period of Medo-Persia. Um, point number three, he says, the word cleansed is not a correct translation of Daniel 8.14. Um, he says it really should be translated justified. Now, the Hebrew word for uh, that's translated to cleanse in the original Hebrew is the word nizdak, which comes from the root word sadak. Now, it is true that nizdak can mean to justify, but Ford misses Hebrew parallelism. And let me show you what this means. This is one verse of many that does this in the Bible. Job 4.17 says, Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? So the question that, that runs in parallel is that to be just, is to be pure. And so to be just, this Hebrew word sadak is used. To be pure, the, the Hebrew word taher is used. And so when the, the Bible translators see under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary and the word nizdak is present, they understood that the process of justification and purification run together. So taher means to purify or to cleanse. And um, Gerhard Hosel did an excellent study on this for the Biblical Research Institute. If you want to go into a deeper study of this parallelism of Nisdak and Tahir and how all of that um, fits together. The Biblical Research Institute Committee did an excellent job um, answering that question. Point number four, he says, Antiochus Epiphanes was the primary, if not exclusive, fulfillment of the Little Horn prophecy in Daniel 7 and 8. 
This is clearly one of his weakest arguments. The little horn is obviously the papacy. If you look at Daniel 8, for example, the ram of Medo-Persia waxes great. The hego of Greece waxes very great. And the little horn of pagan and papal Rome waxes exceeding great. But he says, no, the scholars all agree. Well, yeah, the scholars from Babylon believe that the little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes, who ruled for maybe six or seven years and came to Jerusalem and defiled the temple. But you can't tell me that one king is greater than the kingdom of Medo-Persia, and the kingdom of Greece. Clearly, Rome is the power that waxed exceeding great. And it's kind of interesting, you know, I was at this Daniel 11 conference a couple of months ago, and one of the perspectives that's being presented is that Islam is the king of the south, and they use 10 out of 45 verses to say that one of the kings of the north is one of the, um, one of the kings of Antiochus, and so you're going to give nearly 20% of the entire chapter to one relatively insignificant Antiochus. I see that as a very similar approach to making Antiochus Epiphanes the little horn. Um, point number five, the book of Hebrews teaches that Christ entered the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary at his ascension. However, he fails to see that in Hebrews 9 verse 3, Paul uses the phrase hagia hagion, to describe the most holy place. Otherwise, he uses the phrase tahagiah to refer to the holy place and the most holy place together, which is best translated holy places. And Hebrews 9.24 is the best translation of that. And Desmond Ford exclusively used the New International Version to make his case. And the thing about the New International Version, I'm not opposed to people reading that, but it's not a word-for-word translation. It's a dynamic translation. So if you're trying to do a study of scholarship, you're getting a uh, translation bias from the translators rather than getting a word-for-word translation. So you want to use word-for-word translation when you're um, doing study. Um, point number six, the Bible teaches neither a two-apartment heavenly sanctuary nor a two-phased ministry by Jesus in heaven, yet Hebrews 9, 1 through 5 actually shows two apartments um, Hebrews 8 verse 5 shows that the earthly sanctuary was a pattern of the heavenly sanctuary. And Revelation 11:19 shows the opening of the most holy place of the sanctuary in heaven at the sounding of the seventh trumpet on October 22, 1844. Point number seven, he says, the phrase within the veil in the book of Hebrews refers to the second veil or entrance to the most holy place. But there's two veils into the sanctuary. There's the veil into the holy place, and there's the veil into the most holy place. And Hebrews 9, verse 3, when describing the most holy place, says after the second veil, um, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which is the most holy place because it's Hagia Hagion. So there's a veil into the holy place, a second veil into the most holy place. So that was, that's another very easy um, answer or a question to answer that that does Ford brought up. Point number eight. Seventh-day Adventists are wrong in teaching that sacrificial blood defiled the sanctuary either on earth or in heaven. Now, Ellen White says in Spirit of Prophecy, volume four, page 266, as the sins of the people were anciently transferred and figured to the earthly sanctuary by the blood of the sin offering, so are 
so our sins are in fact transferred to the heavenly sanctuary by the blood of Christ. And as the typical cleansing of the earthly was accomplished by the removal of the sins by which it had been polluted, so the actual cleansing of the heavenly is accomplished by the removal or blotting out of the sins which are there recorded. So now we have a problem because what Desmond Ford believes is different than what Ellen White teaches. So guess what Desmond Ford says about the writings of Ellen White? Number nine, the writings of Ellen White have no rightful authority in settling doctrinal controversy within the church. So Desmond Ford claimed that her writings were inspiring, but not inspired. However, we as Seventh-day Adventists believe that her writings are an identifying mark of the, Seventh-day Adventist, or of the remnant church, the Seventh-day Adventist church. So you can see now the problem that we're running into with, with what Desmond Ford is saying. So he believes that Christ went straight to the most holy place at his ascension in 31 AD. He doesn't believe that Ellen White's writings have authority, inspired authority. They're inspirational, but they don't have inspired authority because her writings disagree with his theological beliefs. Now, the reality is, is that much of what Desmond Ford taught in the late 1970s and, and onward into the 1980s um, had a profound impact on the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Because while the Seventh-day Adventist Church officially rejected his perspective about 1844 and about the judgment and about Um, the authority of Ellen White, there are many members still in the church to this day who accepted his positions, and now another generation has come along since then, and without even realizing where that influence has come from, they will say, well, I'm sola scriptura, so you got to show me from the Bible, not Ellen White. And that's coming from the mentality of Desmond Ford. Now, I, I do tell people, well, I'm sola scriptura too. I am. And you know what my Bible says? That God's last day church keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, which is the spirit of prophecy. So if I'm going to be faithful to sola scriptura, sola scriptura says that at the end of time, at the end of the world, God will have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy, which will have authority because it's the testimony of Jesus himself and Desmond Ford put himself squarely uh, in the path of the authority of Ellen White, which he really was putting himself squarely in the path of the testimony of Jesus. And again, we have a lot of difficulty in the church today because there are some who have the same mentality as Dr. Ford and believe that 1844 is not of any significance. I talked to one of my friends who was a teacher um, at one of our schools around this time, and the, the Adventist pastors who were graduating from the school were taught by the, the leaders in the department that when they went out for interviews to become pastors in the church, that if they were asked what happened in 1844, their response should be, that's when our church started. And so it was, um, 
you know, the Seventh-day Adventist Church itself actually wasn't even organized until 1863. The Advent movement was well on its way by that point. But you can see that there was a clear, concerted attack against this clear doctrinal teaching. Now, point number 10, and this is where um, things become especially interesting, and this is going to transition to our last presentation as well. Desmond Ford says, The sanctuary doctrine as historically taught by Seventh-day Adventists contradicts the New Testament gospel of grace. Now, what does he mean by that? What he means by that is that he believes that the QOD gospel, that we are born sinners by nature, that we're going to sin till Jesus comes, the only thing that will save us is a legal covering, a legal declaration. And so if we've accepted Jesus and we're covered with a legal declaration, and if it's known that we're going to have sin in our lives until Jesus comes and changes our nature, what's the purpose of an investigative judgment? Because you're going to find sin anyway. That's his point. And it contradicts the New Testament gospel of grace. Notice what Ellen White, though, says and how she connects the gospel with the sanctuary. This is one of my favorite statements in Ellen White's writings. This is Testimonies, Volume 5, page 575. The great plan of redemption as revealed in the closing work of these last days should receive close examination. The scenes connected with the sanctuary above should make such an impression upon the minds and hearts of all that they may be able to impress others. All need to become more intelligent in regard to the work of the atonement which is going on in the sanctuary above. When this grand truth is seen and understood, those who hold it will work in harmony with Christ to prepare a people to stand in the great day of God and their efforts will be successful. This to me is a very powerful statement. Notice that the great plan of redemption should receive close examination, especially as it relates to these last days. And when we study the sanctuary message, it should make such an impression upon our mind and heart that then we want to impress others with it. But you can't do that if you don't even believe Jesus went into the most holy place in 1844. And then she says, all need to become more intelligent in regard to the work of the atonement, which is going on in the sanctuary above. If the work of the atonement is going on in the sanctuary above, that means that it wasn't finished at the cross. When this grand truth is seen and understood, those who hold it will work in harmony with Christ to prepare a people to stand in the great day of God and their efforts will be successful. Sometimes we wonder why our efforts aren't successful. Well, this is how we can have successful efforts. When we truly get to know Jesus and what he is doing for us right now in the sanctuary in heaven above and how it connects to what he did to redeem us on the cross. So we follow Jesus from the holy or from the courtyard into the holy place, into the most holy place. We are following the Lamb of God wherever he takes us. And by the way, the 144,000 are going to follow the Lamb of God wherever he goes in heaven because we've learned to follow him here. We don't stop in the courtyard, which is where most Christians stop. They're camped out in the courtyard. We follow him into the holy place and ultimately to the most holy place. Now, this statement finishes in um, the next paragraph by study, contemplation, and prayer. God's people will be elevated above common earthly thoughts and feelings and will be brought into harmony with Christ and his great work of cleansing the sanctuary above from the sins of the people. 
Their faith will go with them into the sanctuary, and the worshipers on earth will be carefully reviewing their lives and comparing their characters with a great standard of righteousness. So notice that when we understand this truth, we will study this message, we will contemplate this message, and we will spend time in prayer. This will elevate us above common earthly thoughts and feelings, and we will be brought into harmony with Christ and his great work of cleansing the sanctuary above from the sins of the people. And I believe this is going to be in my next presentation, but in order for the sanctuary in heaven to be cleansed above, we need our hearts to be cleansed of sin here on this earth. But the problem with Desmond Ford is he said that we would never really be cleansed of sin here on this earth because we are sinners by nature and we will sin until Jesus comes by nature. Thus, we can only be saved by a legal justification that covers us. And then he makes an interesting statement. He says justification is 100% God's work. And I believe that completely. Justification is 100% God's work. But, he says, sanctification is 50% man's work and 50% God's work. And I have to ask the question, where in the Bible do we find that? Well, I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 23 and 24, because this is actually what the Bible says about God's work of sanctification. Notice 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, and this verse has special meaning to me as well, because this is the last verse that my father quoted before he died. And and this verse says, the Apostle Paul says, "...in the very God of peace sanctify you wholly." That means completely. That's a hundred percent. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. So who does it? God. And he sanctifies you how much? Completely or wholly. That's 100%. So for Desmond Ford to say that sanctification is 50% man's work and 50% God's work is an unbiblical teaching. Let's just be clear on that. That is an unbiblical teaching, and it is a heresy, and it is not true. So where has that led Adventism today? Many are unwittingly under the influence of the gospel of questions on doctrine and Desmond Ford. The everlasting gospel of the first angel's message is what sets Seventh-day Adventists apart from the fallen churches of Babylon. Our gospel is not the same as the other churches. And when Barnhouse and Martin came knocking, we missed an opportunity to help define the difference between the evangelical gospel and the biblical gospel that Adventism promotes. Now is not the time to go back to a gospel that does not deliver us from sin. Because we are living in the time of the hour of God's judgment where the everlasting gospel promises that we, that God has the power to save us from our sins. And that we can stand before a holy and just God with His righteousness through the work that He has done in us by the, by our choice in surrendering fully and completely to Him to allow Him to live out His life through us. The evangelical questions on doctrine Ford gospel is destroying the power of Adventism. It has led to a compromise with the world and to an assimilation of worldly culture in the church because, you see, if 
I really can't stop sinning until Jesus comes. And if I'm simply saved by a legal covering, then why do I need to hold the standards so high? Standards are good as far as they go. But if I'm not saved by what I do, then... And then I shouldn't then, according to this gospel that I don't believe, then I shouldn't be lost also by what I do because I'm covered by the righteousness of Christ. So then we start to ask questions, and you've probably heard this before. Is this a salvational issue? Would Jesus keep me out of the kingdom for this one thing? And you have to remember, how many sins did it take for Adam and Eve to be dismissed from the garden? It was just for eating the fruit. And sometimes we say, man, that's pretty harsh, God. You kicked them out for eating the fruit. Ellen White says that was the simplest test that God could have given to them. And so God in his mercy gave them the simplest test, which they still didn't pass. And so this idea that we're going to continue to sin until Jesus comes is, has led to compromise with the world and to an assimilation of worldly culture. We've denied the, the power of God to deliver us from sin. So we're going to close after this with a presentation on gospel clarity for the last days. What does the Bible and the spirit of prophecy say about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the everlasting gospel? You're going to want to be here for that because we need a gospel and we need a savior that, that saves us fully and completely and that gives us a message of hope that we can believe in a savior that saves us to the uttermost amen so let's close this section with a word of prayer and then we will move to our last presentation father we thank you that we do have the everlasting gospel of jesus christ to believe in that jesus is our savior who has died for us and he's also our lord and he can empower us to live the life of faith, that he is our example and that we can be like him. Give us faith to believe where we are doubting. Forgive us for where we've fallen short. Give us grace to overcome. And may we be found faithful when Jesus comes. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.